This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The number of cases and sadly the number of coronavirus deaths in the United States continues to rise. One of the leading questions, when can life return to normal? For some perspective and analysis, we turn to Peter Brooks. He's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Well, uh, this is this is tough on us, right? Social distancing, which is really physical distancing, is tough, especially as the as the weather gets better, as spring has sprung and summer is just is just around the corner. And I wanted to get an idea, Steve, as I was thinking about this, what what sort of signs, what sort of things should we be looking for to give people a sense that may not follow this issue as closely as as some in, in the science and medical community do. Of course, I think everybody's following this closely, right? But the fact is I wanted to put out, put out some things, and I came up with four signs. Um, and it may be a little simplistic, but I, I really wanted to give people something to, to look at. And I said that was the numbers. It was testing, it was the healthcare system, and it was medicine. And we can break that down any way you'd, uh, you'd like. Well, let's begin with the numbers. What will you be looking for? And what have you seen so far over the last couple of weeks? Do you think that we are beginning to bend the curve? I hope so. Some of the models out there are showing a decreased number in the, in the death rate, and I hope they're right. I hope that the model's overestimated, as a matter of fact. But we, we're not clear at that. We're in a very tough patch right now, and we're going to have to see how these, numbers, how these numbers play out. But when I was talking about numbers, I really wanted people to look at the numbers and not at emotion. Um, I wanted them to say when we, when we feel like things are moving in the right direction that the number of cases is decreasing um, over at least a two-week period. You know, this is a very vicious virus we're dealing with. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not the flu. Uh, it's more deadly than the flu. It's more infectious than the flu. In fact, I was reading something today in a preprint study, um, which means it has not been peer-reviewed yet, that it could be, I don't know, four to five times as infectious as the flu. You know, the flu is about, it has an infection rate of about 1.3, which means that one person will infect 1.3 other people. There are some other viruses out there that are horrible too, like the measles, which is 12 to 15 to 18 people. One person will infect that many. But this now they're talking that this may be as high as six. This the coronavirus may be as high as six. So it's a very contagious um, virus. And of course, we don't we don't have a vaccine or we don't have therapeutics yet. So I you know as we um, it's important that we wait a little bit um, beyond when these cases number of cases flatten out when they're the same. Uh, we give ourselves a little bit of time so that we feel comfortable that people are no longer contagious. So over a two-week period, I'd like to see case numbers come down. Of course, I'd like to see hospitalizations and death rates come down as well, and recovery rates go up, that people are coming out and self-resolving this or resolving this in a hospital and returning to, returning to health. And also, I think what's really critical on, re- on numbers, Steve, is that we have a strong reporting system in place across the country so that health professionals epidemiologists, virologists, doctors, nurses, other staff are able to get a sense, a good picture of the situational, or get a good sense of situational awareness of what we're dealing with with this virus. Remember a couple of months ago, this was called a novel coronavirus. Now it's gotten a new name, SARS-CoV-2, and the disease is called COVID-19. But um, the fact is, is that it was new. We've not dealt with this before. 
Um, and so we need to, we need to, there's a lot of things that the scientists are still learning about it. So having a strong reporting system across the country where people, we can put this data in front of scientists that can help us develop policies, public health policies, is critically important. Your second point is testing. And Peter Brooks, there's been a lot of finger pointing. So I want to ask you, who's to blame for the lack of testing in the U.S. and why other countries, most notably South Korea, seem to be far better prepared for this than the United States? Well, each each country is, is unique. Each country has a has a different medical system. Each country has a different biosurveillance system. Each country has, um, you know, different culture um, in terms of numbers of population. I mean, if you're talking about a place like Singapore, you know, a country of a couple of million people, or you're talking about the United States, a country of, what, 320, 330 30 million people. So I would say that the testing would roll out here was a bit choppy. Um, I'm not in a position now to say point fingers, and I don't think that's what's really important right now. I think the important thing is, is that we get this testing program going, and we are, and that it not only includes testing uh, for the COVID-19 virus, which is the disease, um, but it also includes antibody testing or immunity testing and the ability to get quick results. And as you know, uh, scientists and the private sector and the public sector are working at a feverish pace to try to be able to, to do that. But this is a large country. It's a huge country, 50 states, you know, 330 million people, huge expanse of, of territory. And so there, there are real challenges as opposed to some, of, some smaller countries. And we have a number of hotspots. You've seen them on the maps every day, cities across the country and states across the country where the, the infection rate is, is, quite, is quite high. So we need to have testing for the disease, which is what we're focusing on right now. They're developing immunity tests, which means people may have had the, the virus and self-resolved it. In fact, they say 80% of people um, may have mild to moderate symptoms, require, require no visit to a doctor's office or to a hospital, and uh, they may already have some immunity, which is something that scientists are also studying. What is, how long are you immune after you've had this virus? Um, sometimes it, it lasts for a while in some viruses, and other times it can be quite short. So it's a critical we get the disease testing, we get the antibody testing done, and we have a quick way to turn that around. As you've heard, there's testing now where they can do these things in, what, 5 to 15 minutes instead of several days. But the challenge is, of course, is deploying that around the country um, so that we can do that testing in rapid, in rapid uh, succession. And, of course, to that point, testing is a big economic issue as well because it's one of the factors that would allow us to basically get back to a more normal lifestyle in this country. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we were able to test people for immunity? I, we have no idea how many people in this country have actually had the virus already and have self-resolved it. Um, that would be great to know that. Uh, because those people may be able to uh, return to work because they're going to be immune. But once again, we still don't know a great deal about how long the immunity lasts. So there's a tremendous amount of scientific work that needs to be done. But yes, there's a possibility, and some countries are even looking at this overseas, talking about giving people immunity certificates, testing them, making sure there's no uh, evidence of disease any longer, that they're no longer contagious, that they have the antibodies, and that they could return to work safely. 
um, as healthy as healthy human beings and not be a risk to others. And one of the other things about this, Steve, I didn't mention earlier, is the real challenge of the question of asymptomatic transmission. The CDC has said that maybe 25% of the people that are showing no symptoms are actually carrying the virus and could, be, could infect others. There are other studies out there that say it may exceed 25%. So people who don't even think that anything is wrong with them, and especially this time of year when you think about pollen, right? Everybody has a little bit of, little bit of congestion, exactly. a little bit of runny eyes, maybe even a cough, um, nothing necessarily serious, something they see every year. Uh, 25% of people who have the virus may have no symptoms whatsoever, which often looks a lot like your standard uh, flu, um, flu symptoms. One of the other lessons that I think we have seen in the 21st century is the limits of our hospitals in understanding how quickly American hospitals, especially in these hotspots, can be overwhelmed, and also a reminder of the strategic national stockpile. And I wonder if you can address those two key points. Yeah, I mean, the healthcare system is really what's critical. And part of the reason for this social or physical distancing is so that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Uh, we have a limited number of beds. We have a limited number of ICU beds. We have a limited number of ventilators. Um, when you're dealing with infectious diseases, personal protective equipment, which is well known now as PPE, is, is critical to keeping our healthcare workers healthy. I mean, you, if you have a doctor or a nurse or a technician that gets sick in a hospital uh, and has to, um, has to step aside, um, then that doctor or nurse or technician isn't there to help, help us make us healthy or help us recover. So it's critical that we also protect our healthcare workers in this, in this respect. So, yeah, you don't want to overwhelm the healthcare, healthcare system. Um, you know, there, it's under right now, it's under tremendous stress and strain in some areas. We've all seen the, the footage, we've all seen the footage on TV, and we should be very thankful for these intrepid people who are really going into battle with this uh, disease to, uh, to, save, to save lives. So uh, one of the important things, of course, is that another sign is that um, our health care system is stable. You know, our system now is where we have it at a position where we have the personnel available, healthy uh, nurses and doctors to take care, of, take care of patients who need to be hospitalized, that they have all of the equipment that they need, that there are enough ICU beds, that there are enough ventilators, there's enough PPE. And we also should look at, you know, the strategic national stockpile and making sure that's resupplied. That's also critically important because we don't know the pathway of this epidemic. We don't know the course of this epidemic. Are we dealing with a one-off event where we're going to have it now and we're never going to see it again? And there is some precedent for that, like the SARS outbreak of 2002-2003. We've not seen that back. Um, are we going to, if we loosen social distancing too early, are we going to see a second wave? This is things that epidemiologists are, are worried about. Um, is this going to become seasonal? Is it, you know, there is some thought out there, Steve, that this might be like the common cold and influenza or the flu. And remember, the coronavirus is, the common cold is in the same family as the coronavirus. It is a coronavirus, where they seem to weaken during the warmer months. Uh, and they really come back in force in the, uh, in the fall and the winter and, to, and sometimes into the spring, uh, where they seem to be much more potent in their, in their infection than, um, than otherwise. Um, so it could become part of that. It could become, it could become seasonal or 
the worst is that it's persistent, that we're you know, perhaps not protected till we have a vaccine or therapeutics uh, to, to deal with this. So there's a, there's a lot of potential pathways out there, and we just don't know because this is a new virus uh, we're dealing with. But, yeah, we want to get the healthcare system um, stable and healthy as well as the, the strategic national stockpile filled with goods and uh, things that are needed in case there's another outbreak for this or anything else. We are talking with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. His piece is titled, When Can Life Return to Normal? So let's talk about medicine because, again, in our lives today, we often take medicine and vaccines for granted. But now with COVID-19, we realize not only how vulnerable we are, but also how helpless. Yeah, um, we don't have a vaccine for this. And we're still working on therapeutics and antivirals. Uh, You know, they're looking at... Uh, unique sort of treatments. They're also looking at existing drugs that might be used for something else, um, say, say HIV or Ebola, uh, that, could be, that could be helpful here to save lives, get people through a very difficult time with this, uh, respiratory, with this respiratory disease. And the vaccines take a lot of time. I mean, you know, this is something everybody's becoming aware of. They don't, it's very difficult to just take one um, and create one and use it on folks safely. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to be considered. There's phases of these clinical trials. They start in laboratories, and then they often move to, to animals, and then they move to small groups of people. Uh, because what happens in a laboratory doesn't mean it's going to have the same effect in, in, when it's injected into a person. Are there going to be, is it unsafe? Are there going to be side effects? These are things that we need. You know, we don't want to do more harm, obviously. So there, these take a while. And Despite the tremendous international efforts out there, the experts will tell you it's going to be probably 12 months before they're able to have a vaccine for this. It might be more than that even. Uh, maybe through some sort of miracle we'll have something sooner than that. But that seems to be the, the, standard, the standard route. So it's critically important that we get that. And they're also, in the short term, we're looking at therapeutics, treatments, and, and antivirals. You've heard about the tests that are ongoing in hospitals using hydroxychloroquine, uh, Z-Pak, azithromycin, uh, Z-Pak, uh, these sort of things. There's been some anecdotal evidence out there from overseas that it has worked, but we're right in the middle of this tremendous challenge, this tremendous crisis, and having time to study these things, uh, it, time, is, time is precious. There's no, there's no question about that. So that's one of the things I would also like to see is if we're making progress, like I said, a vaccine won't be here soon, um, but I'm hopefully we'll have progress on therapeutics and, and antivirals that will allow us um, to um, move in the direction of normal. And as you pointed out earlier, in a time of crisis, uh, it's counterproductive to point fingers. But at some point, if we have the chance to sit down with Chinese officials to learn about what yeah. happened in Wuhan and make sure this doesn't happen again, yeah. wh- what would you expect in that conversation? Well, you know, I, I've uh, looked at China for many for many years, and I'm uh, very disappointed in China um, in this in this respect. Um, they they had opportunities to do the right thing. Uh, they had the opportunities to be open. They had the opportunities to be transparent. I mean, we still don't even know the origins of this yet. Um, obviously, once again, you know, somebody could argue, well, we're in the middle of a crisis. Do we have to we, let's let's take care of what we have to take care of right now? And we can go back and look at this. But they, they, they covered things up. There's no question in my mind. Obviously, I was here in Washington, D.C. and not in China 
but I feel pretty comfortable that they did. And there's been reports out that they've even skewed the number of, of those who were affected by this. Um, they were slow to let into a World Health Organization team. They, uh, they didn't allow the CDC to go there, our CDC to go there uh, initially. I think some CDC members did go on a, a World Health Organization delegation that went later on. I really wish they had been more open and transparent in terms of that, and it could have changed things. There are some, there are some studies out there, uh, and I won't cite any numbers, but uh, people think that, and of course this is, uh, people think that we could be dealing with things very differently today, or the outbreak, the epidemic could be much less ferocious than it is if China had uh, been more open about it early on. Um, and of course, there's, there's concerns about some of the, the practices over there that were shut down after SARS. You know, SARS, the severe acute uh, respiratory syndrome of 2002-2003, was believed to have started in Chinese wild game markets, or they're called wet markets. Uh, the Chinese shut them down again, uh, shut them down afterwards, and obviously it appears that they were, they were flourishing again in Wuhan in um, 2019. Um, and these are believed to be, have been the origins of this, um, of this zoonotic disease, a disease that moves from animals to people, whether it's directly or via an intermediate host. Uh, but people right now believe that they came from those wet markets in China. Perhaps coronaviruses do exist in bats. Um, they don't make bats unhealthy, but they can get into other hosts, including people, and mutate and become uh, deadly, obviously, unfortunately. So there's, uh, there's concerns. I mean, I, there are concerns, and I think it, it's a, that in the future, as we deal with these challenges, um, when we deal with these infectious diseases, that international cooperation and international coordination early, that's also critical, is, is gonna be the way that we're able to prevent uh, things like this from, from hopefully happening again. And isn't it about time to ban those wet markets across the world? Yeah, I do. I believe so. Um, I've seen I've seen things where they said that, you know, some of the newest infectious diseases uh, are these zoonotic diseases that uh, transmit via zoonosis from uh, from animals um, to people. You know, look, swine flu, avian flu. Uh, this happens, and I think they're. Uh, you need to take the steps you need to take to prevent that from uh, prevent that from happening because we've we've unfortunately seen the toll that it uh, that it can take. I am going to ask you a three part question and you can break <laughs> each part out separately, but they're all tied okay. together. And my question okay. is, what has this pandemic taught us about our government, our country, and ourselves? So begin with the government. We- yeah, you know, I, I, to be honest, I, I haven't really thought about these things because we're right in the middle of this, of this, of this crisis. Um, I think, you know, I, one of the things I've noticed is that this is not just a a government response. Um, a all of America response is required. Um, you know, the federal government has its role in our system. The states have a role too. In fact, I, I would encourage people to read a little bit about that the powers that the state has uh, involving public health. They have, you know, a lot of powers. Um, and it's very interesting constitutionally how, how that is. And it's also the American people or whether the French people, or the Italian people, the Spanish people, the Chinese people, um, and their responsibilities um, to their families uh, 
and to society. Uh, the, ability, the willingness to socially and physically distance ourselves. Uh, how long we've been? A couple of weeks now, right? At least, and depending on what part of the country you're, what part of the country you're in, it could last for a few more weeks. It could last for months. We just don't know it at at this point. And the effect that it can have. I mean, there are some positive signs that social distancing or physical distancing is is having an effect on the, the rates of in, of infection. Um, and hopefully that will that will that will be the case. Um, so I think that what I'm seeing is that during these sort of epidemics, which is now a global pandemic, um, that everybody has a role. It's just not something that the, a federal or a central government can handle. It has to be handled at the state and local and county and every household. And there are responsibilities all the way along the way. And we're I guess it sounds trite, but we're all in this we're all in this boat together. And what's remarkable is how quickly this has all happened. So for the American people, and also for you personally and your family, what has it taught you about yourself? <laughs> that every day is a gift, um, and that uh, you know family is is so critically important. I've have some family with me, and I have some family that's away from me, um, and um, how real this became so quickly you know how you know a few weeks ago i was planning you know fishing trips to alaska and and hunting expeditions in the fall and little league baseball that's probably the toughest thing steve around here is my son plays a lot of baseball in the spring how old is your son everybody's disappointed so it it's um you know each day uh is a, is a gift and um we just can't take those uh, each day. We can't take days for granted. How old is your son, and, and how is he dealing with all of this? <laughs> He's a ten-year-old, and uh, we're all we're all busy here at home. He has a full uh, uh, distance learning program with his school, um, so we're trying to balance. Uh, my wife and I trying to balance doing our work at think tanks in Washington D.C. and making sure that uh, that Jack is well schooled. And well exercised, <laughs> which is uh, with his level of energy of a ten-year-old and a kid who really likes sports is is a real challenge. And we we certainly miss not having to, uh, the ability not to watch baseball on on television. But uh, once again, uh, each day each day is a gift. Let me conclude by asking you what question you have moving ahead in terms of this pandemic, and where you see it heading. Well, you know, I don't know where it's heading. Um, I hope, I'm hoping that it's, it's short-lived. Um, and I'm looking uh, forward um, to looking uh, to developing lessons learned um, from this. Um, this, is, this is really, uh, in many ways, unprecedented. Some people hearken back to the Spanish influenza of 1918 here in the United States, where, as I, re- as I recall the history, um, we suffered several waves. Uh, and then places that did social distancing did better than other cities. Um, and so I, I think that uh, I'm looking forward to working on how we prevent, at best, something like this in the future and how we can um, find best practices um, for, for dealing with it if it is thrust upon us. Peter Brooks is a senior research fellow. He's also a baseball fan, like many of us. He is joining <laughs> us from his home here in Washington. We thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Be safe. 
And thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. A reminder, this podcast is available online at cspan.org slash podcast. Be sure to rate and review us. We look forward to your comments. I'm Steve Scully. Thanks for listening.